You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. You good? I'm good. Let's get to it. It's Easter morning, and there's a very familiar cast of characters on stage. Mary is the first one to the grave. That always struck me as interesting. The first one to see the risen Christ was a poor woman. Maybe not who you would have expected. And then Peter, always Peter, right? Peter ready to jump out into the spotlight, the, ready to take the stage. The softer, calmer disciple, John, just outpacing him by a little bit. And then a few days go by, we zoom out. Jesus hosts his beachside fish and chips breakfast. Restorative one-on-one conversation with Peter, that mysterious walk on the Emmaus Road. Jesus ascends, and then we wait for his return. Many of you know these gospel stories, and you're very familiar with them. I think there's somebody who often gets lost between the pages in the Easter scenes. He's somebody that you might identify with. He's somebody I identify with. History kind of looks at him with a bit of a side eye. He's not the lead dog in this ragtag pack of disciples. He never wrote a New Testament book, or there's no sermon that he ever preached that's ever recorded for us. He doesn't really even get mentioned much in the rest of the New Testament. I'm talking about Thomas, supporting actor, utility infielder, and the only disciple who's unfortunate enough to have a descriptor, like branded in front of his name. We don't call him Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas, which I think is really unfortunate, because he's hardly the the only disciple who's worthy of an adjective. Why don't we call Peter Reckless Peter or John Crybaby John? We get Doubting Thomas. I don't know about you, but I believe there are two great voices at work in a lot of our heads and our souls. The voices of shame and then the voice of grace. One says, you did wrong and you better run and hide. You know that one. The other one says, yeah, you did wrong. Come on. So this morning we're going to take a look at this forgotten disciple who just after Easter had good reason to stay shackled to shame, but who Jesus mercifully meets exactly where he is. And so this morning we're going to look at just a few verses in John chapter 20. And so if you like, you can follow along on the screens behind me, or you can turn there, flip there, scroll there on whatever copy of God's Word you have. And as we look at this short scene for just a few moments, here's what I want us to consider. Here's the real thing I want you to remember this Easter morning where we celebrate a resurrected Christ. A risen Christ can make you into someone that your shame never can. Quick Bible study tip before we get going. Anytime you read the Gospels, especially the Gospels, it's tempting 
to place ourselves above the characters because we know the story, right? Like, it's all written down. Like, we know how it's going to end. But let me urge you, it's actually more helpful not to place yourself above the characters, but to place yourself among them. And I think you'll see why. So, John chapter 20, we're just going to take a look. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, interesting little piece of bio for him there, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And we've been taught that Thomas should be shamed, right, for these demands. He shouldn't have asked for this. This is too much, Tommy boy. Just have faith. What's your problem? Close your eyes and will yourself to believe. Jesus died for you. Isn't that enough? What more do you want? But before we so quickly vilify Thomas for his seeming insubordination, I think we do well to slow down and ask ourselves, what's he really after here anyway? A couple options. First off, it occurs to me that maybe Thomas is just cynical. Maybe it's like his personality. He's always that guy with the suspicious smile, believing there's no such thing as a free lunch. It sounds too good to be true. Probably is. Maybe that's just him. Guarding himself against the pain of yet another broken promise, against embarrassment and misplaced trust. He's trusted before, and he's gotten hurt, and now he's learned his lesson. He's hardened his heart. He's put up a wall, and he told himself, I'm not going to get hurt again. Anybody know that feeling? Sure you do. I do. But to love at all is to be vulnerable. And fractured trust is part of being human in a broken world. Here's what I'm learning. You really learn the content of a person's character when you trust them with something precious to you. And for the last three years have been so precious to Thomas. I only hope the person he's fighting to trust will show himself good. Another option, maybe Thomas doesn't have a hard heart. Maybe he just has a tired heart. He's ridden the waves, the ups and downs of the last three years, like everybody else in Israel, trying to make sense of this Jesus of Nazareth, the parables and the persecutions, the miracles and the malignings, the teachings and the betrayals. And after this three-year roller coaster, Jesus is gone. And that once vibrant, hope-filled faith is like threadbare and exhausted. And so maybe this is just Thomas going, look, Peter, like, I don't have energy left for your endless drama. James and John, like, I don't know, your constant competition is killing me. Mary, I really applaud your simple faith. I really do. But, like, you went to the tomb, yada, yada, yada. Here's the deal. I am tired of spiritual-sounding platitudes and quaint sentimentality. I'm just done. You ever been there? Sure you have. Funny thing about spiritual exhaustion, it feels terrible. <laughs> but what you find yourself reaching for when you barely have strength left to reach at all is what you worship. 
And for tired Thomas, maybe he's just reaching out to something, someone, who has yet to deliver on their promise. Yet. Do you think Jesus has grace enough to catch this stumbling saint? But I think the most natural reason why Thomas says what he says is just because of the finality of death. Follow me for just a minute. Thomas's life has had this massive internal collapse over the last week. The last three years of following this Jesus around. Like, for what? Hope has been broken into a thousand pieces. I've wasted it. Those are years I'm never going to get back. It's all over. I'm a fool for believing. And I think we can really resonate with that. It's easy, isn't it, to look around our world and see death and hopelessness everywhere and be overwhelmed by it. To see unhope, unjoy, unfulfillment, unrestoration, deconstruction, demolition, devastation. To see all things that lead us to the inevitable conclusion that hope is, in fact, lost. Let me push this a little further forward for a second. When the cancer did not go away, after you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed. When the marriage fell apart, despite your best intentions, your hardest work, your greatest effort, your greatest, biggest sacrifice, and still. When that child that you've been praying for still has not yet come back, and that wandering prodigal is still out there, vulnerable, somewhere. Whatever deliverance you hoped in has not yet manifested itself. I've got my dark days, and you do too. Being blindsided by death and darkness is sometimes a double punch. There's the hit itself that hurts, and then there's the feeling that despite your best, you didn't see it coming. It's easy, isn't it, in that space to hang our heads, open our mouths, let it rip, and just say, I guess death just wins. I'm not sure which of those three emotions is truer for Thomas. In reality, it's probably a blender of all three. But I offer them as a way of humanizing a man who I think would be very, very at home in a 2023 world. Cynical, tired, battling hopelessness. So I don't think Thomas's words are some arrogant, overreaching, doubting, demanding thing. I think this is Thomas very honestly saying, look, all I see is death. All I see is emptiness. All I see is vanishing hopes and dissipated dreams. And what I want to see is something so overwhelmingly convincing that I can't not believe it. I think this is the deep ache of a very wounded, very hurting, very human soul reaching out for something, someone he hopes is still there. And I wonder if you know how he feels. I think you probably do. God, where are you? That's not a demand, it's a plea. And so Thomas's words just hang out there. <laughs> Remember how I said a few minutes ago that while we're tempted to place ourselves above the characters, it's usually best to place ourselves among them? Here's why. What's Jesus going to do with this? How's Jesus going to handle that? Because that's a little much, Tom. 
That's kind of harsh, buddy. You heard me say a risen Christ can make you into someone that your shame never can. And you're like, yeah, that sounds great. How? Verse 26. Eight days later, stop. Don't miss that. Over a week goes by. Thomas has to sit with these emotions and these words for a week. Can you imagine how that week must have been for Thomas? Probably the worst of his life. Sitting with those thoughts until they soured in his stomach, how wrenched was his mind in the quiet hollowness of that week. How the others may have pleaded with him, like, come on, Thomas. And still his stalwart, stiff-armed resistance until I see him. Back to it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And so this is like this meeting room that they've been meeting in, trying to figure out what end is up and what they're supposed to do next. They're inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. What a wonderful, kind word from the Lord. And he said to Thomas, I feel the camera rotate, can't you? Like the wide-angle lens now narrows, and the light centers on two men. Don't you want to know what Thomas's face looks like in this moment? Like, is he horrified? Is he crying? Is he ashamed? Is he joyful? Like, what's going on? Now, before we go any further, something you need to know about Jesus. Jesus sometimes gives us what we want. Sometimes. But Jesus always gives us what we need, even if what we need isn't what we thought we wanted. I should say that again. Jesus always gives us what we need, even if what we need isn't what we thought we wanted. And so now here comes the words with a week's worth of weight behind them. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Did you catch the verbs? Let's go grammar nerd with me for a minute. Thomas's demand over a week earlier. I want to see the hands. I want to touch the nail holes. I want to feel the side. And then Jesus' threefold invitation here. See my hands. Put your finger here. Feel my side. Jesus wasn't even in the room eight days earlier when Thomas said that. Was he? Jesus wasn't even in that hospital room when you prayed that wordless prayer. Was he? Jesus wasn't even in that counseling session when you poured out your heart, desperate for something to materialize. Was he? In your car? You had nothing else to say and it all came out? This is such a powerful scene, not just because of what Jesus says, which we'll get to more in a minute, but because of what he doesn't say. Here's what strikes me. If Thomas were to make those demands of me, I'd let him sweat it out for eight days, and then I'd tell him to go pound sand. Like, dude, I died for you. 
Like, I hung on a cross for you. I lost pints and pints of blood for you. I was whipped for you. I was publicly shamed for you. I was humiliated for you. I had a crown of thorns made up and pressed into my scalp for you. Do you know what that's like, Thomas? No, you don't, because you ran like everybody else. And now you want me to do what? If it were me. Aren't you glad that Jesus isn't like us? Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't feel the need to leverage shame? Aren't you glad that Jesus gets under Thomas's harsh demands to touch his still soft heart? Thomas comes into this room broken and shattered because everything is gone. Jesus comes into this room eager to heal and restore. And where everybody else, including us, would want to crank up the shame, Jesus refuses to shame him. Jesus does what? He invites him closer. Why? Because shame has a very short shelf life. Shame can never tell you who you could become. Shame can only remind you of who you no longer want to be. Christ and Christ alone, a wounded crucified, risen Lord. That's where our identity should start. A risen Christ can make you into someone your shame never can. Nobody's life has ever changed because they feel bad about something. Life change happens, really happens, when you take take Jesus up on his offer to say, come here, I know you're tired, I know you're hurting, I know you need hope. Here, see me. Let me be your hope. And herein lies the overwhelming beauty of the gospel. Like, I've been a Christian for a long time, I still can't get over this. We worship a Christ who, despite my greatest failings, my biggest doubts, my deepest misgivings, and my just angry frustrations. We worship a Christ who sees me as I am and invites me closer. What kind of a grace is that? So how does Thomas respond (laughs) to this avalanche of grace? Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Five words that involuntarily erupt out of his heart. He just collapses like an exhausted child into the overwhelming beauty of the gospel because a risen Christ can make you someone that your shame never can. Over the past few months, um, I had an opportunity to learn about an ancient form of Japanese uh, pottery. Now, I am not a potter, sculptor, or whatever. I just really like metaphors and beautiful things. And so follow me for just a few moments. There's this ancient form of pottery called kintsuki, and here's what happens. When a precious jar or plate or vase is knocked off the table, broken, and everybody thinks that it's worthless and worthy of the dumpster, and everyone says, well, it's good for a little while, I'm glad we had it, but uh, like... This is kind of beyond repair. It's not really good for anything. Let's just move on. Amazon Prime, two days. The next one will be here. When that happens, a master craftsman comes and carefully gathers the broken pieces and spends time mending and recreating the broken bowl 
But instead of using transparent glue or trying to match the original color of the bowl, the master craftsman uses precious gold filigree to fuse together the broken pieces. And the result is that the bowl was made more beautiful in its recreation than it was at first. Here's why I bring this up. We're all broken. I am. So are you. We bear the mark of pain in a broken world. We need to be remade, and Jesus is eager to remake us so that what happens next in our life is not limited to what happened before. Put another way, a risen Christ can make you someone that your shame never can. The Christian word for that sentiment is resurrection. Resurrection means honoring the broken pieces of a life and putting them back together in a way that they are more beautiful than ever because they bear the mark of the master recreator. The gospel story, and whether it's Thomas's or mine or yours, is really a story in four acts. In the last few minutes together, I want to be very clear about what this means. The gospel story, act one, creation. God's word says that we are created for perfect union with God, unbroken relationship. God looked at man and woman, his creation, and he said, yes, very good. We can't imagine what that would feel like because we've never known it. But we all have this thing inside of us, don't we? This inner sense of oughtness that things used to be different. You ever felt that? C.S. Lewis calls that the scent of a flower we've not yet found, the echo of a tune that we've never heard, or news from a country that we've never visited. Act one is this once-upon-a-time memory of what once was, and we know it now only by its absence, and we long for it to be better again. Act two, the fall. You know this one. Our spiritual great-great-great-great-grandparents ate the apple, and we're still choking on the core. The bowl's been knocked off the table and it's been shattered. It's tragic, but it's true. And we know it because we feel it. God's word gives a name for that. It's called sin. I'm guilty. I broke God's law. I broke the bowl. But here's the real kicker in the face. I'm broken beyond my own fixing, and so are you. I can no more fix myself than a broken bowl can put itself back together. The broken bowl of Brandon needs to be fixed. I need someone who's not scared of my broken pieces. I need someone who won't shame me but save me. Someone who sees me for I am and loves me anyway. Do you know anyone like that? Act three, redemption. Curious thing. Why does Thomas ask Jesus to show him his wounds? Why not like a smile or something? Romans 5.8, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture says this, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or if you like an older vintage, Isaiah 53. This is from Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are, what? Healed. Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday. 
is the exclamation point at the end of the sentence of Jesus' pronouncement of victory over sin and death. You want to know how much God loves you? He bled and died for you. Because you had a sin problem that you couldn't fix on your own. And you know it. Act four, recreation. Here's the really beautiful thing about the Kintsuki bowl. I've got one in my office now. When I hold it, beautiful as it is on its own with its gold filigree tracing through the potted lines, do you know what I really want, though? I want to meet the one who fixed it. Somebody did. It didn't happen on its own. Somebody changed that life. Who is it? Their handiwork is all over this thing. They must have been gentle. They must have been kind. They must have been very wise. The bull is made more beautiful by the mark of its recreator, and so the recreator himself must be wonderful. Another one of my favorite verses. Changed my life once upon a time. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Anyone. If anyone is only the people who have all the answers, no. Only the people who clean themselves up first, no. Only the people who go to church every once in a while, no. Only the people who give, no. Only the people who have their life right and have nothing to be ashamed of, no. Anyone, and that means you and it means me, thankfully. Now, the band is going to come out in just a little bit. And we are going to close our morning in song and an opportunity for you to give. But before we do anything else, I've got to ask you a question. Where are you on this whole four-act drama? Creation. Can you feel that faint memory of once upon a time perfection? Fall. The question isn't, are you broken? Of course you are. You feel it. You know it. And nobody can hide the cracks forever, so word of advice, just stop trying. The question is, can you admit it? Third, redemption. What's your solution for the brokenness? You still trying to fix yourself? Another word of advice, just give up. <laughs> the only way you get resurrection, the only way you conquer death and get new life is through the one who resurrected, conquered death, and can give new life. That's why Easter morning is so powerful. It's Christ and Christ alone. He's the only one. Have you ever said, Jesus, it's you, I'm done, save me, fix me? If you never have, if you've never acknowledged your brokenness and sin and accepted the gift of Christ, let me ask you, what are you waiting for? Hell canceled, heaven guaranteed, life starts and death stops today. And I'm not trying to sell you on anything, but you need to know, he is so very eager for you. Maybe you're in act four, recreation. And you're confident that it's his gold that's holding your life together and not your own. Do you have joy that's deeper than pain? Has he, is he making you new? A lot of you know what that's like, but some of you don't. And so my last word for you is, please do not leave here today. Still a pile of shards of pottery in the corner. You are more than that. A risen Christ can make you into someone that shame never can. He is so very eager for you. Let me pray. Lord, we do say thank you so much for the overwhelming beauty of your gospel, that although we are broken beyond our own remaking, that you are gracious beyond our own imagining. 
There is no brokenness that you cannot fix. There is no past that you cannot redeem, no story you cannot retell, no life that you cannot save. And so, Father, we just say that we love you. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross for us that we might have life. Thank you for remaking us new. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.